Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, though they're arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever listened to our podcast, but it really is more or less just hanging out, talking to us. Not, we're not prodding you with questions. It's just like hanging out and seeing what yeah. kind of sandwich you like, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Where were you on the night of April 5th, 1972 at 11.40 p.m.? (laughs) Well, you know, Bobo, I was a lawyer for the British government for many years, so I did do that sort of cross-examination thing. That was was then and this is now. (laughs) You always just said you were a civil servant. Yeah, I was a civil servant. I have a postgrad in law. And I worked um, in, in the courts, and I used to uh, be the equivalent. It's difficult to translate out, but almost like a prosecutor is what like I was. A, were you a barrister? Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, uh, you you know the court system very well, but it, it's for the government. So um, I would I would um, say why um, people should uh, be uh, found guilty, and the other side would say why not. I dealt with some pretty nasty people. Not always, but I dealt with some really bad, really bad people, torture people who torture people, because I did war crimes as well at the higher level. So I did some of those, and oh man, some of the people I met. <laughs> just, Listen to this. You're you're a humble guy. You made it sound like you were like a janitor or something. You just were like, I just work for the government. You didn't. I didn't know you were a lawyer and all this stuff. Well, you, you know what, Adam? Um, I think for most people, yeah, you'd have to sell yourself, et cetera. But I knew about you for years before I met you. And the, what sold, I guess for lack of a better phrase, what sold you to me wasn't what you did for a living. It's what you did for fun. And I mean, you had been all over the world by the time I had met you. And that's what sold you um, to me, at least. I mean, who gives a crap what you do for a living at the end of the day if you're out looking for Mongolian death worms, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I've always, I mean, I've always had a passion for those things. That was always what was most important to me. You know, I've never been, I mean, the, the jobs I've done, you know, I, I, I've done some, I suppose, good jobs. I was a corporate project manager for Cable and Wireless. I had a big international projects before I was a lawyer. I, I, I've, but I've always seen them as a, as, as a means to an end. So in other words, I, my passion really has been exploration and hunting for unknown species. So for me, it was all about um, it was all about looking for answers to questions, and, and that was you know that the interested me intellectual questions, and that was and everything else was was irrelevant. So I tried to do the best job I could, a because I wanted to, but most importantly, it gave me the money and the flexibility. The companies are giving me the flexibility to take the time off, and I could, and they helped to finance me. So I, you know, I had a good job working for uh, Cable and Wireless. It paid me the money, and I spent it on on doing expeditions they were they, they were self-financed and you know i i took those risks because i wanted to uh and it was you know i've never been driven by 
material things. I think materialism is transient. I think ultimately possessions, uh, you get tired of them and they make, make you unhappy. Um, I've always been into experiences and, and, I, and enjoying them and getting the best out of life and maximizing them in that way. Um, and, and that has been kind of really important to me in everything I've done. Yeah, you know, um, uh, someone I was speaking to recently said that uh, if you're not careful, your possessions end up possessing you. And that's why they call them that. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and ultimately, um, you get tired of them. And you, so let me give you an example. If you think about, say, I buy a really nice shirt, and I talk about this sometimes with my students as well. I buy a really nice shirt, and I spend like 150 bucks on it, not that I have a word. but you know, do I remember that shirt five or 10 years later? But you guys can remember, and I can remember my experiences like yesterday. So I can remember being sat opposite Eucliffe in a tent in Sumatra, and it was raining and it was the next morning. And I remember it, I'll remember it forever. Because those experiences you take with you and you, you enjoy them and you can replay them in your mind and they're gone. But, you know, if you sit there later on and you think, oh, I wasted all that money on those damn shirts, or I bought this car, I bought this new BMW, but it depreciates in value and it's sat there and I've not driven it half as much as I intended to. Things don't ultimately matter. I mean, I don't want to get too philosophical. What matters is the experiences you have and the way you treat and respect other people. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. What a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) You're not America, are you? You're just going to pimp your ride and ignore the, what I'm saying, aren't you, Bobo? <laughs> yeah. yeah, for people that don't know, I just realized a lot of people might not know who you are. Um, Adam's an internationally recognized, probably the world's leading crypto or explorer of mysteries, I guess you'd say. How, how would you describe yourself? I mean, you go look at Africa, Asia, North America. You've been all oh. over. Uh, yeah, I've been everywhere. I mean, some of the remotest places on Earth, I've been to some places I don't think anyone's been before. Um, the, from the West, uh, when I say it, when, when I say that, yeah, I've been all over the place and most of the stuff I financed myself. So it's been on my own dime and that's been, that's been good in the sense that I've, I was forced initially to live like the locals. So to live like the pygmies, cause I just didn't have enough money to do any other way. But, um, it's, it's, it's been risky as well. Cause you know, in some of these places, particularly the violent ones, money talks, but I've survived and I'm here. Yeah, I've been all over the world looking for doing exploration, looking for unknown species. I mean, I probably call myself as an, an explorer uh, because I think after the, all these years, I've earned that title. Um, but I don't really mind what you what you say about me in that respect. Yeah. All right. Yeah, because um, <clears throat> you and you're talking about being in dangerous places. We interviewed John Kirk and he was talking about how you just casually strolled into these like villages in the Congo with killers and robbers and you just managed to get through. Yeah. John, John and I both, um, I, I know John very well, obviously. Um, and I, I like him and we share a commonality of experiences that in that, that we're one of the few people who've looked for the Makili Mamembe, which you know from your previous show with him is the Congo dinosaur. I think he went up to Cameroon and I went into the Congo uh, because I'd always been fascinated about the area around Lake Tele. Uh, and it's very difficult. You're absolutely right. I mean, I I'm, I like chatting to people, uh, uh, but it was intensely difficult to get through there. 
So, you know, I could tell you many examples of dealing with people. I had warlords who I spoke to who broke down in tears as they recounted the massacres that they'd committed. But the most dangerous people of all in the Congo were the boy soldiers, were boy soldiers high on weed, maybe 13, 14. They had a Kalashnikov in their hand. They'd kill you for a packet of cigarettes and they'd seen such terrible things. And it's very difficult to rationalize with them. And, you know, when I was there, the, the, I think the second time I was there, there was a civil war going on. So, you know, I got shot at across the Obangi and the artillery shells are going on overhead. Very intense, very intense place. That's, that's the understatement. <laughs> would, you, would you say that uh, that part of the, that part of, what was that? That would be, what, that Central Africa or Western? What would you describe that as? Um but uh, there, are, there are two Congos. There's, there's the. I've been to both of them, and they're kind of in the central of Af- central part of Africa. Yeah, because Western Africa is really like the the part that juts off to the west more. And it's, okay, so uh, yeah, would you say that like Western or uh, Central Africa there was probably the the the, the most dangerous um, place that you found yourself? Um, or because yeah, people are obviously horrifyingly dangerous, but sometimes just the elements can really come at you and get you too. Yeah, I well, I think in answer to your question, the people there were very, very dangerous. And the elements were very, very dangerous because I was crossing a part of, I was crossing this, to get to where I was going, I crossed the Lakula Swamp. And that was described by Colonel John Blashford Snell as hell on earth, Cliff. And it really was. I mean, but I mean, at the end of it, uh, I think my coolest memory was I managed to get through it and I was, Obviously, because I'm talking to you now, <laughs> and I was uh, I was um, ripped to pieces. Uh, everything had a, a thorn on. It was uh, there'd been an incredibly heavy rainfall, so I was wading 56 kilometres with a pack on, with all my stuff in. Um, I'd had to hunt things to survive. It was really hard work. And then I lie on this pirogue, and as I lie on it, um, I'm so, a carpet of blue butterflies land on me, and there's a gorilla picking its nose from the top of the tree watching me. So that's very cool. When I was in um, I was in Nepal the first time, funnily enough, making the Abominable Snowman film with Monster Quest. And uh, the the ascent and descent of the of one of the mountains I, I climbed was particularly difficult because of the way the sun had hit the ice. So it basically made it, it really difficult ice sheets. And it was one of those, it sounds cliche, but it was one of those one slip and you're dead scenarios. And that went on for hours and hours and hours. And that was very perilous. Mm. So those two things were probably the hardest. Uh, on the border with Mongolia once with a particularly difficult customer there, that was quite nasty. I was, I was detained there. Um, but there's, so there's, a, there's different examples in different places, but those are the first things that spring to mind. Yeah, you got pretty close to the. God, I can never say Mbele. How do you say it? Mokile. Mokile. Mamembe. Mamembe. Yeah, there you go. You rolled it. <laughs> Mokile Mamembe. Did you? You yeah. got? You heard one, didn't you? No, I never. I can't say. I. I, I thought I, I may have done, but I think there's a good point there. You um, don't know you've heard something. You don't know you've seen it until you actually do. You know, the amount of time people say to me, "Oh, well, um, it was a big fight. I must have taken this food that I had." And I was saying, "Well, did you see the big foot? No, but it must have been the big foot." 
Well, what else is around there? Oh, there's no other animals there. So there's no raccoons or anything. Well, there, yeah, there's raccoons, yeah. I, if I, unless I actually physically observe it, I cannot say with any certainty. And what's what you have to remember is, um, as I know you guys do, um, you have to dismiss the probable uh, before you go to the improbable. So I certainly think, based on my investigations uh, of the Congo, that there were um, that that there. Um, it's 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 very likely that that area has. I mean, it has many different species. This area is the size of Switzerland, and I flew over it in an old Anatov, which subsequently crashed um, in in the Central African Republic. I mean, it's very it's very it's it's vast, and you know, there's only a a few peoples, tribal peoples down there. I mean, even the tribal peoples, when I got back to Boa, the they celebrated because all the village turned out because it was like we'd crossed this place no one else had crossed before. And these are people who live there. I mean, I was one of the first people ever to play drums with the pygmies because they came out of the forest and they like met me and we like jammed. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. You would have loved that. So this is, this, is, this is a very wild area. I mean, what people sometimes don't understand is that there are these remote places. And most of Nepal is, is not traversed. Uh, I went to an area in India in the Meghalaya jungle and I spoke to a governor official there and he said, well, I have no idea what's in 80% of this jungle. And it was vast, vast. So the notion that, these, that, that there wasn't a possibility for these creatures to exist in these places, well, that's not, that's not plausible. And, and there are many anecdotal uh, evidences of them, we'll keep them in mind. But did I bring back any hard uh, evidence, scientific evidence, which can be analyzed or corroborated no uh, and i think it's important to state that but because uh, that's what i always like to do with my evidence it has to be analyzed uh, uh, and that's where it's intrinsic worth lies but uh from a point of view of, of could it exist yeah it probably does exist but i can't say anything more than probable based on my experience well, based on your what experience you did have there, do you have any clue what a Michele Bamebe might be? I mean, do you think it's a sauropod, or do you think it's something else, or what, what's your hunch at this point? Well, it, it, much as I, I mean, as a as a child, I was always fascinated by the romantic notion of of of, uh, of, of the Congo jungle, and of course, of course, you read the Joseph Conrad things and then the Livingston accounts. I don't think it was. A, I don't think it's a dinosaur. I, to the best of my knowledge, that area was um, savannah grassland even 10,000 years ago. Not to say it couldn't have adapted, but um, I, I don't think it's very likely. Um, I think that what's most likely is that it's a type of creature. I mean, crocodiles have lasted from well beyond the dinosaur era. I think what's most likely is that it's um, a rare type of creature if I had to guess, something similar to um, a rhino-type creature that may have adapted to an aquatic environment, because the locals talk quite interestingly, and there was a consistency of reports of the male having a horn on its head and the female not having a, a horn, and they were quite quite specific about the horn. So um, that's my best guess. I don't know for sure, but that's my best guess. Don't think it's a dinosaur, but I think it's something along those lines. But it's all speculation, really. But fascinating speculation. I've thought about it quite a lot. Well, that's part of the fun of all this, you know, is speculating on what these things might be. 
Um, and, and of course, the other half of the fun is trying to get evidence and, and analyzing it to see what, you know, to see what that points to. Well, the evidence is the most important thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really only interested in, in gathering scientific evidence, ultimately, that can be independently corroborated. If we, if we don't have that, then um, I think, uh, you know, anecdotal evidence is all well and good, but ultimately, it's not it's not, it doesn't count for anything. What you need is that, that hard evidence. That's what really matters. That's, that's the important thing. And that's what we can sort of get judged on, you know, ultimately. Did you, did you see tracks from in the mud? Remember? No, I did not. Um, I went to uh, the lake, Tele, which is the epicenter of all of the activity. And there's another lake where there's even more activity, allegedly, but I never managed to get that far because I ran out of time and money. I had to go back. Uh, but um, I, I did see um, what looked like two marks of a large creature, which um, could well be, could have been that creature. But uh, I saw, I, I did a survey of the area. I went, it's got, it's got inlets in it. Uh, and the whole area is interconnected. There's, there, it's not just this lake. Let me tell you, there's all sorts of rivers and channels that shoot all, all off across this whole area. But I didn't, I didn't get anything tangible. I'm always after evidence that can be independently scientifically corroborated. What I got from the Congo was a wonderful experience, uh, maybe a world first in terms of exploration, uh, some of the places I was in, but I did not get scientific evidence which could be analysed. And that's ultimately what I'm, a, I'm about. That's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in answers to these questions. Uh, and it cost me a lot of money. I went to the Congo twice. It cost me thousands of pounds of my own money. Believe me, <laughs> I was motivated. <laughs> what was the physical description you were getting for them? Um, they were, uh, for the best of my recollection, I have to look back on uh, on this, but for the best of my recollection, it was, a, it was a while ago, probably about 30 feet in length broadly, which I'm just using medians. I'm using averages here. Um, and as I say, a long neck, almost like a sauropod, with a male that had a horn and a female that did not have a horn and could be aggressive if, if challenged as well. Um, they're called, McKinnon remembered me stoppers of the river and, and they're often in the river channels around areas. Uh, and they are, you, as you sort of hinted at earlier on, they, they do are said to emit knowing noises on approach on occasion. They're, they're, they seem to be almost as aggressive as hippos. <coughs> which can be very aggressive indeed, as I'm sure you know. Uh, hippos kill many people. <clears throat> and uh, and I think like that in some ways in their behavior. So I've, I've, um, one of the other things that you've gone after um, that almost, I mean, as far as I know, nobody, I mean, very, very few people, certainly, you're certainly the only one I know has ever gone after, is the um, Mongolian death worm. And with a name like that, it has to be spectacular. At least the mythology around it must be spectacular. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I was always I was interested in in that because I'd read accounts. Uh, the reason it interested me, and and I think I'm um, I'm the second person to have looked for it because as Ivan Mackley went first of all, but basically the um, I think Josh Gates may have done some sort of film on after us but yeah, it would have been like some short thing you know i mean it wasn't an investigation problem but the the the, the um the um stories of it go back 
many I mean, many years. I mean, not, I mean, the legends of it go back centuries, but I think let's pick it up from like 1920, 1921, when Roy Chapman Andrews uh, was the American archaeologist who many of the Indiana Jones stories are based. He was actually asked while he was in because there's a lot of there's a lot of dinosaur fossils in Mongolia. Uh, there's an excellent museum in the capital of Ambatur which has a lot of this stuff, and um, they were. Um, what, what I was impressed by is they were um, asked by the president of Mongolia. He was asked by the president of Mongolia, could he investigate the stories around this uh, death worm, you know, to see if there was any veracity, any truth to them. So he went off and did that. And, you know, he, he spoke to eyewitnesses. He said, well, I think it probably exists, but we haven't got any hard evidence. And um, then... Uh, Ivan Mackley, a Czech explorer, who's now deceased, he had written very brief accounts of it. And I was fascinated by the idea of it. I loved the idea of it. It's not like Tremors, you know, it ain't like I didn't have a double barrel shotgun and cut back to back with <laughs> surrounded, you know what I mean, down to our last bottle of whiskey. Um, it wasn't like that. But it was intense. And it took a, it took a year just to plumb the logistics of the thing. Uh, just to, just to get it all together, even with the Mongolians, I had to go right down near the border because obviously it's a big country. I think it's the size of Western Europe, and people in Ulaanbaatar had never heard of, of a lot of these areas. And eventually, I set off and went down there and investigated it. But it, it was it took a while to plan and uh, to get down to the border to, to there. And there, lo and behold, in the in the little little local museum near the border is an old carving of the death worm, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was, a, it was, a, I got um, on the border uh, one story. I was on the, on the border and uh, I met this guy who was a, uh, I think he was a, he was a colonel near the, near the border. And he was like with a couple of hookers and he, and he, uh, he had a, he had a, he was having a bit of vodka and he was, he was basically said, you know, come to my base <coughs> um, tomorrow. I think it was, I can't remember. It's only like 50, 60 kilometers away. Um, and I said, oh yeah, I will do. Or, or, you know, the next day. Anyway, um, I was interviewing some eyewitnesses. Uh, the guy I wanted to see who'd worked with Mackley and, and on the border. And so I came the next day and he took offense. So he detained me at <laughs> the border. <laughs> marched me in and, and they did this interview. They're trying to get me to sign this piece of paper. And I'm trying to remember the layout of the base as I go in, do you know what I mean? So I can sit and escape, um, uh, you know, across the desert. So I'm trying to remember everything in the corridors, everything else. And the guy says to me, he says to me, are you a Chinese spy? Because if you were a Chinese spy, I will kill you. I said, do I look like a you know, Chinese spy? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and on top of that, if you're going to ask like that, yeah. the answer is obviously no. Oh, it was the worst question ever. Wasn't it? Yeah, if so, you are this, I will kill you. Answer me. I am not that. Whatever that is, I'm not that. <laughs> I'm definitely not that. <laughs> so, um, so ultimately, I phoned up his general on the phone. We we had I had some contacts in Ulan Bator, but uh, and I can't say the language because obviously um, uh, we're recording. I think aren't we right now? But I got released, so it was all cool. But the 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 um, the creature itself isn't like massive it's probably only about six to nine feet uh long and uh it shoot it allegedly has all these properties allegedly shoots venom and things like that so um it's probably not a worm because of the desert environment it's more likely to be reptilian 
but it was it was it was a great adventure rolling across those plains. I drank a lot of uh, local produce, and I used to have this. The, the Mongolians have a very hierarchical society. It's very much like where you sit, where you stand, and how you treat them is extremely important. And I researched all their customs. They're the friendliest people, honestly. They're really lovely people. Uh, but um, they serve this uh, offal, eat a lot of offal. And I used to call it lucky dip soup because I was like hoping I didn't have the eyeball, you know what I mean? And it, <laughs> it floats to the top of the soup. And because I was leading the expeditions, I always sat at the top with the host of the gear. That's the owner. And I always got like these big portions of this damn soup. And I was like, oh no, here it comes, here it comes. <laughs> Hey, can you describe? Can you describe the Mongolian deathworm like more like, you know, what what physical features it has, like color, all that kind of stuff. Like, and any uh, uh, any information you have on like what they eat or their habits. Well, they tend to come out. They tend to be uh, in terms of the habits. Again, this is a while ago, and, and so I'd have to I'd have to look back on my on my on my notes. But but broadly speaking, uh, they tend to come out in. Sort of May June is when the most common sightings are, just after the heaviest rainfall. Uh, when there's a particular plum, I think it's the saxon or some flowers, they tend to be around then. In those sort of environments, um, are the most particularly, uh, you know, just after rain is, is when you see them. So they're probably they must be burrowing uh, about, as I say, about six to nine feet. Uh, Colour sort of brown or browny grey, uh, said to have this property where they can spit venom. I'm not sure about the, the electric shock things uh, that sometimes people say that they can shoot electricity. I never really found anyone who I witnessed per personally who was prepared to say that that had happened. I had one guy who said he'd seen it spit. But most of the eyewitnesses that I spoke to in, in lots of the different places tended to be older. So they tended to be... Um, um, that made me a little bit concerned as to how uh, it, how it may be doing. I spoke to maybe two eyewitnesses who'd seen one in a couple of years from what I can remember, but most of them were old people as they were recounting their stories. So it could be, and this is just speculation, because I have no physical evidence that it's dying out, which would be a terrible shame. But again, the area is vast, absolutely vast. You know, there are unusual creatures there, uh, many different. I mean, even rare creatures, leopards and the like, powdered leopards. So, sir, it's certainly possible it still exists, but it's, it may be in decline. But that's the story behind it. Are they you see, omnivores? Say again. Are they supposed to be omnivores? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I never, I never spoke to a witness who who um, described what what they might eat or their feeding habits. All I can say is that they, 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 there's a consistency between sightings and having these, seeing these plants. They, they, I think a lot of those life's hard there. They'd have to be. They'd, it would be easier for them to be opportunistic omnivorous feeders. That's certainly true, Robo. But I, I don't, I don't know for sure. I don't, I don't know. I mean, nobody, had, as I said, ever seen one eat. They described their movement, and they were often. Even in the water, they were often near wells as well, which I thought was quite interesting. There's an additional point that I'm remembering now. Uh, but we don't know. But it's a, it, there's an interesting tangential point here. When you say death worm, 
it conjures up an image of something romantic, some monster, the Kevin Bacon thing. But the, the, the description and its habitat and its behaviour is a lot more mundane. Now, the three of us share a commonality, not just the, our interest in Bigfoot, but we've also, all three of us have also been to Sumatra. And when I say to you, jungle yeti, people can be much more sceptical. <coughs> Forgive me, I've still got a bit of a cough. But when I, when I say there's an unknown, a potentially unidentified, rather bipedal primate living in, in Sumatra, that sounds more plausible. So often it's how you present the evidence and how you look into it um, and what measures of objectivity you use, which really determine what the nature of the creature is. The first time Bobo and I had an opportunity to meet you was actually on Finding Bigfoot when we went to explore Sumatra in search of the Orang Pendek. And at that time, it was our first time there, of course. And But that was what, how many times had you been there at that point? Uh, I can't remember how many times I've been there, maybe six or seven. Ultimately, I think I've been there eight times, but I can't okay. remember how many times at that particular occasion. Yeah, but you were basically our guide. You knew the people, you knew who to talk to, you, you knew some witnesses, you knew the location. Um, and man, you and I had a, a, the birth of our relationship was like a, you know, trial by fire sort of thing. Yeah, let's well, go hike into the jungle and spend a week together looking for, you know, a, a, the orang pendek, man. Um, it, what an amazing experience that was. Uh, I, that's something I'll take with me for the rest of my life. What a, what a lovely, lovely time. Um, and when I say lovely time, don't picture, you know, for the people listening, this is not picnics and umbrellas and things like that. This isn't having tea with Adam. This is uh, <laughs> um, a, a horrific hike straight uphill, which was, which was interesting to me too, because I, I had no idea that switchbacks were a Western thing, you know, <laughs> switchbacks on trails. <laughs> yeah, just straight up. <laughs> people. It is straight up to the top of a, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't isn't uh, Lake uh, uh, Guntuju right? Um, yeah. The highest water-filled caldera in the entire world. It's that, well, it's certainly the highest one in, in Southeast Asia. I don't know whether it would be the I wouldn't claim necessarily to be the world, but it was the highest. It's certainly a hard trek, and of course, yeah, uh, because I know that area. I, you know, I'd be there. I'd I'd been there a few weeks before, just so that I can get the eyewitnesses to before you guys came, so I can get the eyewitnesses there, so we can we can concentrate that for when you when you come. Uh, but when we went into the jungle, you went into the jungle um, proper. You went hardcore, and you did really well. I mean, that was the first time you've been in the jungle, and you and you did really well. Uh, and I was I was impressed by you. That you did a good job. Well, I will say that uh, I've, I've had the opportunity now to camp in jungles, like real jungles, uh, a number of times. And man, it is not what people think it is. The jungles are the, uh, maybe outside of just the most harsh desert, so the, the most ruthless environments I've ever been subjected to. Um, mm. Everything there bites you, pokes you, is venomous in some sort of way, and is doing its best not to be eaten and yet eat other things, um, including you, if they can get you. Uh, it, yeah. it, whether it's uh, a tiger that could eat a man or uh, leeches and little hoogly googlies and nasties trying to suck your blood dry and everything else and infect you with all sorts of horrible things. Um, yeah, it, just a horrible, horrible, absolutely phenomenal, lovely place. It's the best and worst of everything I've ever seen. Well, of course, when we were there, um, the, the place where um, you went into the jungle 
has the highest concentration of tigers in the world and, and there were tiger i don't know whether you recall but there were tiger marks on the trees because they on the on, on, they scratched their territory almost like cats but i think my first memory uh, of, of, was in the jungle was and this is and this is like you being like cool under fire i think because you, you obviously that was your first time and uh i know i go feral quite quickly in the jungle because I, I you know I was, I was used to it but i brought up um it had rained so hard and when i say rain you describe the jungle very well there it's not like it rains all that shelter it just buckets down and we had a couple of tents but we also had pondots which are um traditional shelters which are made and i brought a couple of little cans of coke up as a, as a treat i remember doing that like i thought i'd give you a kind of coke in the morning as a treat like the smaller ones and i'd haul them up the mountain and uh i heard you shuffling around the next morning but i'd also got a leech on me and i remember just opening the tent it was just one of my first memories i opened the tent and i pull the leech off and you have to be very careful you do it but i, I had like blood on it and i was like bang 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 you bastard right to the leech like that and then i <laughs> oh cliff and I had I used one of the cokes to do it, and then I went, "Oh, Cliff, would you like a coke?" And you just said, <laughs> "I just said, yes, I'll have the other one though." <laughs> <laughs> Coming in your blood, and I was like, "Oh, I'm sorry." <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. That was good. And you had the chili mudfish, Cliff. And you <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, the chili mudfish. Yeah. See, we were camping on the side of this huge lake, and um. And the, the lake is populated by very, very small fish, you know, maybe a few inches long at the most. And these people that we were with, they would go out and um, they would use their own baskets and actually raid other fishermen's baskets. I guess it's appropriate there, um, which are like these like shrimp traps sort of things where fish can swim in, but they can't quite figure out how to swim out. And so you get 50 or 100 fish in these little traps. And the way they choose to cook them is they just take them, they throw them on palm leaves, if I remember right, or banana leaves or something like that. And they... They fold it over and they cook them. I mean, bones, guts, the whole nine. Um, and then, of course, uh, with tons and tons and tons of uh, hot chili sauce on it. So, uh, and when I, of course, you know, when in Rome, so I'm, I'm trying this stuff. And sure enough, um, it tastes just like I thought it would, chili mud fish. <laughs> <laughs> And you were like, I remember you going, I said, Cliff, what do you think of it? And you went, screw this chili mudfish. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't very good. It wasn't very good. <laughs> That's what I said. Uh, yeah, I lived off that stuff for like a month. Of time. You know, even now, um, I don't really like rice. It's, it's interesting. You know, I don't mind it in sushi now. I've got used to it. But there was like, I just don't like eating the stuff because I, I ate it for like breakfast, lunch and dinner for like months at a time, you know, in different environments. And I just can't stand it now. It's like ruined my taste. <laughs> but that chili mudfish, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's not the best for your digestion if you're eating it for weeks on end. But it is a beautiful place. I mean, oh, on a positive note, it's beautiful. Yeah, and you know, um, and, and another thing that I, really stands out to me about that trip, a lot of things stand out to me about that trip, of course. Um, that's where we obtained that hair that we thought was taper. And sure enough, it turned out to be taper, but uh, Dr. Brian Sykes kind of used it to poo-poo the orang pendek, which is unfortunate. Um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, that was a really, we, we, thought we were almost, po we were positive it was taper, but we had him tested anyway. And, you know, he said, no, no such thing as orang pendek. This is taper. I was like, oh, God. Um, you can't extrapolate that conclusion from 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 one test. I mean, what happened before then? I, I think it's important just just for your listeners to know this. Many years ago, I had got hair samples which were before DNA um, was was 
the thing, or even uh, DNA testing or genetic testing was was very popular. I had had hair samples analysed uh, by uh, Hans Brunner, and if people want to look at it, they can they can Google this. Uh, New primate species in Sumatra. Uh, if you Edge Science magazine, they can Google that and have a look at it because it's free. Uh, but in that, Hans Brunner had he was the guy who did the Lindy Chamberlain case, the uh, Cry in the Dark, and Meryl Streep was in the film. I think it's called Cry in the Dark. But basically, Lindy Chamberlain had, had said that a dingo had taken her baby, a, a wild dog in Australia. Police didn't believe her, and he was a top. Analyst, analyst of, 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 of hairs and stuff like that. He was used for the Australian police in murder inquiries, and he analysed the hairs, and he came to the conclusion it was indeed a dingo, and it was good enough to get Lindy Chamberlain off. His his evidence was was critical, pivotal in the case. Now he analysed the hairs that um, I and my team had got back from Sumatra, and he came to the conclusion there was only a couple. He had to destroy them as part of the analysis. Unfortunately, I wish he hadn't, but. That was that was then and this is now. But he came to the conclusion after analyzing those and looking at the structures and everything else, and you can see slides of because I published them in that in that paper, that they were um from an unknown species of primate. He spent a long time doing that. So there's a lot of evidence. You know, I had a the first print I found again with my team, I had analyzed not just by Jeff, Jeff Meldrum. Um but also by uh, David Chivers, the world's leading primatologist at Cambridge. And again, he came to the conclusion, unknown primate. Is that, is that definitive proof? No, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, and I accept that. But what it does is it says that there's, there's, there's quite a lot of not just anecdotal evidence, but interesting science. So I think that, that, that dismissal of a, the reason I've gone into a long answer is I want to understand the context. I think uh, it, it, it's 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 to base one hair analysis and say, well, uh, therefore this thing must not exist. That that's a poor conclusion. A better conclusion is that we need to get more evidence, and there has been some interesting evidence that it does exist. Not least in 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 the project as well that you sponsored yourself, Cliff, for the Grand Neck project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was that trip to Sumatra with Finding Bigfoot that was the genesis of the Orang Pendek project, and um, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff came in. And you know, uh, and I learned a lot, of course. You know, I think we all learned a lot from it. And um, out of the forty or fifty casts that we got, unfortunately, a lot of them turned out to be fake. Um, the the people I worked with over there uh, just straight out hoaxed in some way or another. And I had to be uh, someone on the inside because um, a lot of the footprints are show the same individual fake footprints. Um, but having said that, there are a small number of footprints out of the 40 or 50 that I have that seem to be legit, that um, show clear uh, differentiation from foot to foot, which is nice. Um, and you know, they, I guess they could be hoaxed because I got to look at this whole thing with a very uh, critical eye now that I know that hoaxing was involved. But some of the stuff looks very, very good at the same time. So I think it's one of these things, kind of this mishmash thing, like so many other bodies of data in Bigfoot land or hominoid land, um, where some of the stuff's legit and some of it isn't. So you have to weigh it, each individual uh, piece of evidence on its own merit. How many, I mean, I'm not going to hold to this because obviously you need to do more analysis, but how many of them do you think um, are genuine? Oh, let's see. Probably about a dozen. Okay. That's good. That's, that's interesting. Good. Good. At least there's, at least there's different ones in different shapes. 
Good. Well, there are. You know, the most some of the more compelling evidence uh, comes in the form of uh, of like three or four tracks in a row. And in fact, mm. that, that's how I started cluing in that some of these other ones were fake. Because I got five in a row, um, and, and and turns out that they're all way too similar way too similar for me to think that they're real. And then uh, when you start comparing those to some of the other ones we got, they turn out to be the same the same little stomper or whatever that they were using for that. Um, but yeah, some, the, the three or four or five in a row that I got from, oh, the name escapes me right now. Um, but uh, those are probably legit. And um, yeah, there, there's a number of ones that are very interesting. But you know what's, I think, yeah, the Rank Pendex stuff is fantastic and I'm super stoked on it. But what came as a surprise um, from that project is uh, the the footprint data supporting the idea of the orang gadang, the larger uh, species, yeah, yeah. you want to call it that, that's found in Western Sumatra. Orang Pendex, of course, as probably most of our listeners know, are small little guys, three to five feet tall. Um, but orang gadangs um, seem to be around five or six or so feet tall. Um, and a gadang, I believe, translates to like large or big. So like big man essentially is what that orang gadang translates to. Um, just like orang pendek translates into little man and orang utan, orangutan, translates to forest man. You get the mm. idea. But yeah, um, I didn't, I wasn't looking for the orang gadang, um, but sure enough, it found me. And um, there's some really good examples of footprints from that thing, which I think is probably the largest triumph of the uh, um, Rang Pendek project. Yeah, and I'd agree. And, and I, I, I think it's also important, <clears throat> as a slightly tangential point, to say there are no, because uh, I get asked this question so often, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it now, there are no orangutans in this part of the island and haven't been, uh, to the best of anyone's knowledge, for, for, for many centuries. So not misidentification of, of an orangutan. And the footprints of the orangutan uh, I have very different features to the orang pendek prints, which are uh, have been, certainly the ones that I have, have analysed before. They're very distinctive. They're, they're completely different, and anybody just at a first glance would be able to tell that. Oh yeah, and, and that's also true of the orang gadang. Uh, orangutans have long, long toes, very big, exactly. like toes, but um, clearly not made for a bipedal walking. You know, with their mass on the ground. But um, orang pendeks and orangutans both have um, like larger toes and shorter toes, um, which would which would be a necessary uh, redesign of their foot. You know, to walk bipedally with any sort of mass. Um, yeah. So it's very interesting and clearly evident the, the, the moment you look at them that they are not orangutan footprints. Yeah, very, very true. I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think of, you know, of, of, if we looked at potential cryptids around the world, I think it's fair to say that they would be, the orang pendek would be considered as, as one of the most plausible uh, of all of them. You know, and if I had to speculate, it could well be an example of parallel evolution. It could well be a variant of the orangutan uh, that's evolved to walk bipedally. That wouldn't be beyond the pale for me. Uh, but of course, I don't know. I, uh, it, it's just it's just a hypothesis. Yeah, that's my gut feeling at the moment. Is I think that they're uh, a bipedal orang essentially, because um, we know that other kinds of orangs existed. Orangutans existed in Southeast Asia um, historically, you know, um, in, in ancient time, like prehistoric, prehistoric times rather. Um, so I, I think that's just those things living still, basically. Um, and, you know, interesting, I also think they have a wider distribution than just on Sumatra. 
um, I, I think that they go into Southeast Asia because I was uh, corresponding with a biologist um, a few years ago, and this biologist reached out to me because he had seen a Sasquatch um, in the mountains in Northern California, and we were talking about it or whatever. And um, but he he said that he was when when he was uh, much younger, I think. Um, doing some postgraduate work, I believe. His specialty was peafowl, you know, like peacocks and stuff like that. Mm. So he was um, in the mountains that border Cambodia and Laos. And uh, his and he was up on these ridges and stuff, and he wanted to go into a valley. And I guess his uh, guides would say, no, no, we don't go down in there because those things live down there. And he goes, all right, whatever. And over the next week or so, he observed what he thought were orangutans. A few times. Mm-hmm. A big biologist, you would think that he would know that orangutans aren't native to there. But he said, by all the, I was looking at these things down in the bottom of the valley, and they seemed equally adept at going on four or two legs. Um, and they'd root around and climb on logs, and he'd see them occasionally. And he just said, oh, yeah, that's why they don't go down there, because those things are down there. And he didn't really put two and two together, because his mind was elsewhere, apparently. Um, but so I, I think that the, there's a strong case to be made that orang pendex, whatever they are, especially if they are more ape-like, like they seem to be, um, they might be have a wider distribution. And even to the point where they could be responsible or some close relative could be responsible for the more ape-like yeti of the Himalayas. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting. It, one of the things, you know, we can do is speculate um, – how many of these creatures might exist and, and what's their plausibility. I mean, one of the first things to say is, of course, that there are the idea that they're a modern phenomenon is is, is nonsense. That, you know, which you know, we talked about I've talked to both of you at some stages about the Yera and the Chinese wild man. And the talk the stories of those go back 500 BC in Nepal, uh, the, the shamanistic religions talk about the the uh, yeti long before the advent of modern religion these are these are real creatures to these people i spent some time with a head lama in mongolia who showed me some of their ancient texts with yetis in them so it's not a modern phenomenon and the idea that in remote pockets of the world these creatures may still exist is is is, is not is can be considered improbable but not impossible uh, so we have to remember all of that and you know the other thing i'd say is now we know there are many different types of humans so how many of these things exist? We don't even know them. It used to be the fact that we probably knew about us and Neanderthal. Now we know all, all these. We touched on Flores, dear people, all of these sort of things. So we don't know. But it, I think what I'd say is, you know, when I've dealt with scientists, because I, I like to work with, I like my field research to, to be analysed by credible science and scientists. And, you know, I think they're more open to these ideas. Uh, as as we've expanded our knowledge about our about the ancient history of humanity, so yeah, I think I think that's one of the most fascinating questions, really. So, we're, so now you're living in the United States, obviously. I think you're down in San Diego or, or a suburb thereof, right? Yeah, yeah, I live in San Diego right now. Yeah. So this has given you a lot a lot more opportunity to delve into you know my favorite cryptid, of course, is a Bigfoot, um, and. and but then again, I lived down in Southern California for most of my life, and I know it's a long way uh, from Southern California to most viable habitats of Sasquatch. But having said that, I also know that there's Sasquatches in the Southern California mountains, and virtually no one is looking into that. Uh, have you been spending time doing that sort of thing since you've been living here the last few years? Yeah. Uh, let me say, first of all, I don't mind – um, traveling anywhere in the United States. I've been everywhere from Alaska to the south to 
the East Coast. I've been everywhere, um, all over. Not as much as you two guys have, um, especially during your filming, but I've done a lot. Of, I've been to all over the place, uh, investigating. Uh, but yeah, I set up. Um, there are stories down here. It's not. It's not as common uh, as, as you might. Pacific Northwest, of course, uh, but but there are stories down here in the border area, definitely. And I set up trail camera projects down here. You gotta be a bit careful near the border; it can be a bit edgy. <laughs> yep. But 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 yeah, no, I have been, and I and I was interested. I've investigated stories. I talk about that. Um, it's one of the things I talk about in my new book, uh, Extreme Expeditions Three: uh, Bigfoot versus the Yeti. Uh, I I just published that. Um, a few, what, a couple of weeks ago, the Bigfoot versus the Yeti book. And uh, I I talk about, that's some of the things I talk about. I mean, a lot of the, that this book is really about Nepal and or about my um, excursions into the Bigfoot world over the last five years. So, yes, I did. So, uh, and I investigated the stories of the Anzaburigo, um, Anzaburigo Bigfoot stroke creature and, and the yucca man all of these things i had a look at you know one of the reasons it interested me was because when i was in mongolia i like to draw parallels with the ecosystems and when i was in mongolia uh i was investigating one of the times i was investigating we talked about the mongolian deathworm but i also looked for their uh almas and i did a film for national geographic just for a short they were there for a short time but i was there for a long time going all across the, 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 the area of the border with Kazakhstan. And one of the places, I, one of the areas I was in, I was with a, uh, a guy called Ulzi, a hunter, a very credible person uh, of all the witnesses that I interviewed. Uh, I thought he was one of the most credible. And uh, he had talked about how he'd seen one of these albums and, he, and it had stood up on two legs. When it had seen him, he'd come from the corner and surprised it. Uh, he was hunting marmot. Uh, which in incidentally uh, probably caused the plague, <laughs> the bubonic plague, but that's a whole different story. Oh, God. And, uh, huh? the, the, the bubonic plague, not the one we're currently experiencing. No, the coronavirus, the bubonic <laughs> yeah. plague. Um, but but the, it, he had, it, it, it had stood up and uh, it had run away. It started bipedally and then ultimately it had run away on four, four, four legs. And uh, the... The ecosystem there, this, this this sort of cheap scrubby desert, was very is very similar to uh, the uh, the the area in the Anzaburigo and and the Joshua Tree and all of that, and you know tribal people lived there for many centuries. There are large mammals that live there, like the bighorn sheep. Uh, so I don't see um, why it's implausible that something like that could live in in the in these very remote parts of the desert. You know. Uh, you go, I've been off trail there, and on trail there are trails, sure, but there are many, many miles where there's nothing and no one off trail. Uh, so, yeah, I've set up projects there. I've, and I also investigated, um, you know, that story around uh, around the zoo that you passed on to me. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're my Southern California guy for uh, down south of L.A., um, so whenever I get any reports down there, I, I just send them to you because I know you're going to do a good job and I trust you. So, thank you, man. Well, I, I thought that was I thought that was a very interesting story. And I spoke to the guy who was who was head of security there. Uh, I went out to see him, and basically they had had just so people you have the zoo itself in the centre of, uh, of of 
San Diego, but you also have a wildlife park, which is about 40 miles out. And it is, um, you know, there's, they do have uh, larger animals out there. I found a cougar trap out there before. There's a big old cougar that has a range not far away from there. And, um, but it's, it's basically farmland, for one of a better word. Uh, and, you know, the guy had had stones and he'd heard screaming on the outside the park uh, on several occasions. And then uh, a woman who worked at the zoo who wishes to remain nameless. So this is, he was well familiar with animals, exotic animals. There's no bear around there, by the way, um, in this part of Southern California. Exotic animals, and she knows them very, very well. Um, was coming down this road, and I went to the place where uh, she had said she'd seen something. What she saw was a large gorilla. It was about three, between three and four in the morning, running on all fours across the road. And she was so alarmed at this that despite the possible ridicule and, and definite ridicule she did subsequently face, she felt she had to contact her employers at San Diego Wildlife Park. And they conducted an official investigation and counted all their animals. So I thought it was particularly interesting because this is somebody, as I say, somebody who's used to these animals. And she stuck her neck out, for want of a better word. She thought, you know, I need to do something about this. And she was freaked out by what she saw. So I thought that was a good story. Yeah, yeah, it's a very credible sighting report. And when you look at the area, of course, the, the, the you said it was farmland, which means down there, of course, that it's irrigated. Um, yes. Google Earth, it's very, very green. And it's surrounded by rolling hills. And, um, you know, people say, oh, the, uh, there's not too, there's not enough cover down there. There's not this or that. I said, well, first of all, there's one thing I've learned from finding Bigfoot, and I've said this before, of course, is that Bigfoots don't give a give a damn about your expectations of where they should be. They just go where they go, and um, if, as long as there's habitat nearby, they can put 10, 20 miles under their feet in the night, no problem. So if they just want to come in, raid some farms, or you know, take a few sheep, or doing whatever they're doing, then they can get out of there pretty quick. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what you have on the edge of that is you have Palomar, which is, uh, and then you have you have some some woods and forest, and then you get on the Pacific Crest Trail, which I've been on. So, and that leads you to wood, woods and forest beyond. So, you're on the edge of things there to a degree. And you know, that's and I that's the key for down there. You're on the edge of things because uh, hunters all know this: that animals hang out in transition zones where one kind of habitat changes into another. Whether that's you know like forest meets meadow or you know uh, desert meets river or anything like that, that's where the greatest abundance of food items, therefore animals, would be. And in the Southern California mountains, which are food rich to begin with, I might add, um, they abut right to the desert, which is also food rich, but in an entirely different way. So right in between the two is just a cornucopia of a variety of different animals and plants and things and insects to eat. Um, it is a very, very rich ecosystem, so rich that I believe the, um, the last grizzly bear in California was actually found down there. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but that's what I am led to believe. Um, and so that whole area certainly has enough cover and food for Sasquatches. I mean, if the grizzly bears were down there and stuff too, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, the, and the food, I mean, there are plenty of food sources down there. I mean, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things grown there in the, in the farms itself. So, you know, and one of the other things I found just, just not very far away from there, I interviewed a young man who'd, you know, he'd been out there with his girlfriend. It was only a few miles away, maybe 10 miles away. And, he, you know, 
um, a year or so later, and he'd seen something which he described as ape-like, which had run down the hill on all fours after he'd, come, he'd, he'd seen it on a pathway. He was going for some sort of romantic moonlit walk with his girlfriend. He'd parked a car. They'd got up, and it was like 11 p.m. or something, and they'd come across one too in that area. So, you know, I think they, again, this is speculation. They could well be transient, opportunistic feeders who have to migrate long ways, but that would be consistent with other grey apes. Orangs are very solitary and they travel long distances to feed. I think the orang pandep does as well. You know, I think it's one of the things that I observed was that it snapped as it moved through the jungle, you know, and, and it looks for um, plants in season. So it was often up at Gunung Tuju when, it, when there was a crop of ginger growing because I was particularly fond of ginger and I think that that's what they do as they move along they'll look and see what's around and they'll migrate that way certainly in uh, my part of California yeah yeah you know I got a I got a uh, video it's a couple years old from a border patrol agent down there of about an eight foot tall upright figure walking through the brush it's it's not great it's at a distance and it's kind of low quality but it is upright and it's moving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do get the odd report. It's not, I mean, it's not like, you know, if you go to Oregon or uh, Northern California, certainly it's, it's not nowhere near on that level, but um, it does. It, you can make a reasonable, a reasonable only assumption that there may be small groups of these things moving around, uh, crossing the border with Mexico and moving up into forests and, I think that's consistent with large animals, you know, and I've, I've seen, I've interviewed a few people I thought were actually spot on. So it's good, and yeah, and I've enjoyed doing research here, but I, you know, I won't, I'll, I'll go wherever, wherever it takes me. I'll, I'll, if I find, if I think there's a, something that I want to investigate uh, and I can afford it, I'll get on the, I'll get on the plane or drive or whatever else and get there. So I have, I mean, I'm quite fortunate to live in the United States now because it, it's relatively cheap to travel in the United States. You know, I've, been all, I've done a lot of things all over the world and that was very expensive. I can move about and get into environments and wildernesses relatively easily compared to what I used to have to do. Uh, so off I go if I get a chance. <laughs> nice. What was the closest call where you th felt like you could have, you know, got seriously injured or killed by an animal on one of your expeditions? Besides a human, that is. Besides a human. I think there was a time in, um, well, there's been a couple of occasions. I've been charged by elephants, uh, both savannah elephants in Kenya and by forest elephants in the Congo. And the forest elephants are smaller ones. But I think the worst time when it was slightly sinister, one of the better words. I mean, snakes have tried to have a go at me. I don't Black Mamba tried to chase me again in Malindi in a forest there. Um, but, but I think the one that I thought was the most sinister, there's a few examples, was, was in Sumatra, funny enough. And not far cliff from where I took you. Uh, what I was trying to do, because I had more time than when I was with you, um, I, you know, I was, I was in the jungle for extended periods. So what I tried to do was if you, you know, if you're moving or trudging through things, you don't see anything. I mean, people say to me, you know, you know, because you know, I've done this. I've taken people out into the jungle before, as I told you. 
uh, well, you know, where are all the animals? And I might see a couple of monkeys. Well, they're hiding from you <laughs> because you're making a lot of noise and you're moving through the jungle and you're a predator. And also it's it's the day and the many of them are nocturnal. So what I was trying to do is, is, is go angles of elevation within the jungle where I could see and observe things and I'd spread my team out. But I always wanted to know where they were and have sight of them to a degree. And there was one occasion when... Um, only about, I can't remember exactly, but only maybe about 10 feet, maybe 15, not very far away anyway, there was there was a tiger. And I knew it was a tiger because luckily I was downwind of it and it was, um, I smelt it, it was like a wet cat. And they're ambush predators, so it was stalking me. And then I see um, little clouds of black flies as it, as it took up position and it was thinking about whether it was going to attack me or not. And, um. I got my team together very slowly, and um, and we, we we gathered we gathered ourselves together, and and, and eventually it thought more better of it and moved away. But it was it was a close thing, you know. One of the things I say when I move through the jungle is I like to, my teams to be very visible. I like to be able to see, um, make sure I see them, and that's for good reason, you know. Not so long ago, there were 13 people in a party walking through, ironically 13, there were 13 people walking through the jungle and they did, they, they got too many big gaps between the area and the tiger took out the 12th person who just jumped out in the bushes as it was playing to do with me, dragged him in, at part of him and they didn't realise and they got to their rendezvous point and there were 12 of them and they went back to find the, find the 13th half eaten. So that was, that was fairly close, but you know, fortunately, I did the right thing. But there's been a few um, incidents with animals along the way. Yeah, but that's, I thought of that one because that one sort of was sinister. When I was chased by a bull elephant in, in Kenya, I managed to get away quite quickly. But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was the worst. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so, Adam, I, d- I didn't even know you had written um, two books, but somebody recently gifted me um, your third book. Uh, that you mentioned just a little while ago. What was your second book? Well, I I, I, I wrote, I've written, this is my third book, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm not part of any organization, let, 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 not confuse it, but I, they were called Extreme Expeditions, and it's just a coincidence that those are in Extreme Expeditions. I'm not, I mean, I've done work with the one in the Northwest, but uh, the, the, the one, and, and it, uh, you know, I went to Alaska with them, but it's not, um, it's not the title of the book is coincidental to the organization, I should say, just because I think sometimes people confuse it. But my books are um, Extreme Expeditions 1, Extreme Expeditions 2, and Extreme Expeditions 3. And the most recent one is Extreme Expeditions 3. I've just re-released two, and I will re-release number one um, shortly. Uh, I'm, I, I've reformatted them and, and re-released them and you know added additional pictures. But new is the, the third one is completely brand new just re-released two and i need to do some more work on one and then there'll be a trilogy if you like and there'll be well i mean if anyone wants three they can get it off amazon and they can get two but it, it, it's it's all of my work over the last 20 25 years 25 years probably in different parts of the world and they focus on particular sequences and what i was doing and, and you know and it starts you know um how i came about to do this in one which i'll re-release uh, and why I did it, and it goes up to the modern day. So it takes, um, I think, three uh, takes it right up to uh, to uh, modern day, um, right up to Alaska. 
and, and Florida, uh, some investigations there. Uh, the, so it's right up, right up until that. Uh, and, and it's all about, and it's written, you know, it's deliberately written in a conversational style. I, I want it to be written as though you and I uh, and Bobo, the three of us are, are sat around a campfire and talking about what happened. So that, that's, that's what I wanted to do. And, and that's how they are. So they're meant to be like. So we get to put this podcast into a book then. And, well, um, it, some of it, some elements, but certainly, yeah, it's, it's, it's about what I felt and I think at the time and what it's like to be in those situations and, and how I got to be there to do them and what, um, I, what motivated me to do them. It's all about, it's all about that. So it's all, it's a variety of different, different situations and experiences there. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you, you mentioned Alaska a couple of times, um, and I, I meant to ask you about this. Um, so, yeah, you and I did the same TV show. We we're just on different episodes this past. Yeah, we, we didn't that, know. I, I didn't know until I saw your, um, I saw your thing uh, on your on your public Facebook page or something, and you said, "Oh, there's an episode going out of this Alaska trial." I thought, "Oh, yeah, I did an episode of that." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know you were in it. Yeah, the, the producer sent me an email. And said, "Hey, Cliff, your episode's on tonight." So I blasted it on social media, and I watched it. I wasn't on it; you were on it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, I like. I mean, what I like to do is I like the stories uh, behind them, and um, the, the the story behind the episode I did was was really fascinating. And it goes back. I'd had a, I'd been in Vancouver. I met this. Uh, guy Stephen Major who runs Extreme Expeditions Northwest that's his organization not mine and uh, he had was fascinated by um and I, you know we got on well I mean he's, he was very nice to me we, and we, we but he had had a passion for the hairy man of Port Chatham and basically the story is that um this was a thriving little town in Alaska and in the 1950s he got abandoned because something called the hairy man was starting to kill people and uh, and the, they had security for for the town, and still uh, it started to kill people. And I spoke to had a contact up in Alaska, a, a, a policeman, Beans Baxter, and I asked him. I said, you know, and he lives in Homer, which is the nearest town to it. You can't; it's only accessible by boat, and then only uh, a specific length of boat. It has to be over thirty something foot long because of the tides and things. And it, and, he, and, I, and it sounded like something out of a Stephen King novel. And I said, you know, he said, well, this is, to the best of our knowledge, this is a true story. You know, the locals won't go here. It's a creepy-ass place. And I thought, well, this is perfect. I love it. I love the story. And, he, and Stephen wanted to go. So I decided I'd go with him. And, um, you know, he asked me to go. And so I went. And the first time I went, no one would take us, literally no one. I went with him and, a, and a, a guy called Josiah who was doing a little bit of filming for him. And I decided to camp on this spit so I could see from all angles, almost like a fortification. And, you know, we had to get special permission off the tribes to go there, which we did. So we were allowed to go. And uh, it was, it was, um, it was a buzz, you know, it was, it, I mean, the town itself is, is creepy. There's a lot of bear sky in there. There's a lot of bears around. The town itself is very, very creepy, but we did the first survey, and when we got back, all the locals were like, "Where are you still alive? Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> we thought you were dead, you know? We thought you were dead, and we had to radio in. And, uh, I mean, this one guy picked, picked us up, and he was damn relieved to see us. You know, tell. 
But then um, the the uh, TV channel contacted uh, Stephen and then me and said, you know, we'd like to go back. And so I went back with uh, Stephen and Beans and we made the film. And, and you know, within the film, um, they took some of the footage I shot. Uh, there was one night when uh, I was there. I mean, it's interesting now because I saw a few more boats uh, in the in the bay, not actually at Port Chatham, but in the in the inlet as you lead up to it. So it almost seems like we've broken the seal now. We've been more people might well be interested. It's expensive to get there though. You can't just chug off there. It costs a lot of money. Um, but when um, when we went there. Uh, I shot something, uh, not physically, as in on a film, on, 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 the, on the night vision, that looked like, what happened was I, I made a call and it was just right at the end because I thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. And, I, and something moved very long. I mean, I was quite eagle-eyed. I like tracking. I've always loved it since I was a child. It's my favourite thing to do. I love tracking and looking for, for, for signs of animals. Always have done. Always, always out in the woods um, from... from you know, the moment I was born, and then I did it later on with military and stuff like that. People, um, but the, the the as I as I went through, um, I it looked bipedal and it stopped and it moved along and, it, and then I didn't know this, but Dr. Robert Alley ended up analysing it. It's in the uh, Port Chatham uh, hunt for the Port, hairy man Port Chatham episode, and he came to the conclusion it's not definitive. It certainly isn't definitive. Uh, and I'd say that now, but it looks like it's bipedal. It's impart. It's not. It's no Patterson Gimlin. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not going to big it up, but it. But it certainly looked like that, and it looked like that to me at the time. And I'd never met him before. Um, I met him a couple of weeks ago because Stephen had a, an event up in Metalina, and I and he asked me to speak at it. And I went uh, to the town hall in Washington there, and. Uh, uh, and, and I thanked him, you know, because I didn't know he was going to do he was doing the analysis. I never spoke to him. And he said, you know, we think it's bipedal. Or I think it's bipedal. And I was very pleased about that. It's, as I say, it's not definitive, but it makes for a good episode. And it's a great it's a great little story. You know, I like all that. You know, even, you know, as you're going in and you stop at one of these tribal villages along the way and, like, no one will talk to you about it. And they say, oh, well, you shouldn't go really. But, you know, off you go. It's, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a great adventure. And I got opportunity to do some tracking and I went there twice. I liked it. I loved Alaska. I love the frontier element to it. It's damn expensive uh, for me as an individual to go, but I love the I loved the place. I thought it was wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, talk about a wild and big place, man. Um, it's ridiculous out there. So did did you see bears while you were there at Port Chatham? Uh I didn't see bears uh on that occasion. No, lots of scat of bears. I mean, and lots of sign of them. There are many different bears there. I think the Coast Guard had said that there were a lot, there were, there were a high concentration in that area as well. So, so it's not, you, I mean, and it's, it's quite strange really, because in, in the actual town itself, there's a lot of bear scout. When I moved out, I explored all the inlets. I didn't find as much, but there was a big concentration in Port Chatham itself. Uh, and, it, and it was, um, it was, it was, uh, it's quite, you know, it has a, it has a certain vibe to it. It's difficult to articulate, and maybe that's because of, of its of its um, of its legends. But it, the, the first time I went, I had really good weather. It was it was great, and, and and you know, for Alaska, it was the sun was shining all the time, which was which was useful because it was it, you know there wasn't anyone around. The area is uninhabited, uh, and you know, if 
if anything happened, you've got to deal with it on the ground. And it was my job to make sure that that was dealt with. But um, the second time I went, uh, it just rained incessantly, really hard rain all the time, and it made it uncomfortable. But I'd go back, but it's honestly, Cliff, it's so expensive. You've got to be rich or you've got to have a film crew behind you to do it, really. Uh, you can't just shoe off there. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's why I jumped at the chance to do the uh, episodes that I was involved with as well. Because I thought, well, when am I going to go there? You know, otherwise, this is great. Let's go. Yeah, let's go look for monsters, man. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Why not? And I take those opportunities. It's great. I mean, you know, I, those, th- those sort of things have given me opportunities i mean I've, I've always loved doing the tv shows you know i mean i because i get to do this stuff for free and that's that's and i don't have to pay uh to do it so i'll bring them on <laughs> forget it <laughs> oh you know i was gonna ask you one thing uh, what do you think it is that the uk do you think the uk has put out so many explorers over the centuries because there's just not that much really rugged wild stuff and dangerous animals and in the UK, is that what makes you guys like? There's you, John Kirk, and a host of others over the decades that have really pushed the boundaries of, of ex- exploration. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I do. I wasn't. Although my first degree before I did um, history, it was a postgrad in law. I don't think I was motivated by that. I mean, what motivated me? I'll, I'll tell you, really, really as succinctly as I can. I mean, when I was. Um, very young. I had a sister that died of cancer. I still have one living sister, but um, it was a very unpleasant experience. Um, and it, but it, it taught me not to take life for granted. And then when I was um, a little bit older, I had um, I had an accident. I was hit by a motorbike which was driving illegally on the on the on the sidewalk on the pavement. And um, the doctors said to my poor parents who'd already lost a child that I'd never walk again. But I was like, damned at that. And I was like, no, I'm going to walk. And I learned to be a swimmer. And I was my, um, I was my city champion uh, within a year. And, I, and of course, I, I healed and I was fine, no, no problem. But I think, you know, I had early formative experiences of, of, not taking life for granted and also having to exercise in a normal amount of determination. And I've always, I know I was always fascinated when I was a kid with maps and nature and stuff like that. So for me, it was a natural progression. I I didn't want to live what I would have considered, and this is not to denigrate anybody else, mediocre life. I didn't want to ebb away. I wanted to just grab life and do as much as I could, as long as I could and not take anything for granted. And I was certainly influenced by, um, reading accounts of, of, of explorers across the world. But I think, you know, many of the old, the, the British things were, were, you know, I think there's a, there is a desire probably in the British spirit among some quarters for adventure, but also many of the, you know, many of the um, empire things, if you like, which is no, which are almost gone now, were, were driven by economic opportunity, second sons wanting to earn fortunes. So it's quite complicated. Uh, but yeah, I think that I think that there is that that spirit, and my genetics are mostly actually Viking. So <laughs> I had them analysed recently, and I'm more Viking than anything else. Actually, I'm, I'm my, my my genetics are like half over half Scandinavian. So there we are. <laughs> Maybe it's that too. <laughs> With all of these things, it's it's the combination of factors. But I think uh, I think my uh, I, I think I've always been quite driven to you know. It, it, 
the thing that I'm most interested in when I look for these things, certainly the 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 um, ones like Bigfoot and Narang Pandakis, the, the big thing is I'm interested to scientific questions. I'm interested in how intelligent these things might be. I'm really interested in that and the, the answers to these questions. So that's what I, I, I have an intellectual curiosity. Yeah? I mean, none of the, um, I, I don't do it for money, as you know, it's, it's like the worst business decision ever. I mean, the, the, the TV stuff I love, but it happens to me by accident. Um, I, I'm not motivated by ego. I don't care what people think of me. I want them to like what I do, but it's not what drives me. What drives me is answers to questions. That's what I'm really interested in. And the adventure, those things. What do you got, what do you got on your plate for next? You got any plans for any adventures? Well, I don't know. I'll have to wait till this, um, I'll have to wait till this uh, coronavirus thing settles down a bit. Won't I? I mean, I just put, as you know, I just published my book and that was it. And I had a couple of things as options, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure um, what will happen yet. I've always got a couple of things in the, in the sort of pipeline and then I sort of take it from there and sort of decide what I'm going to do yet next. But I, I like, at the moment, I like, I like doing the sort of Bigfoot investigation, the Bigfoot research. So, I think more opportunities doing that um, for the time being. But if something comes up internationally and I like it, I'll take it. We'll we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. But I've I've enjoyed doing this big push stuff over the last few years. It's been a, it's been great fun. I like it. I like being in the environment. I love being in the woods. And Cliff talked earlier on about the jungle being a hard environment. It certainly is. Sleep in the desert, but the best environment to be in is, is I think, is the forests. I've always enjoyed those. Yeah, western western uh, United States especially like on the West Coast, is so mellow and mild compared to the rest of the world, basically. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful forest. I love it. Um, and, you know, being here has made me very happy. Uh, there's nothing I like more than walking through the forest and then, you know, um, resting up, campfire, a little bit of a chat with friends. That's my favorite environment. I could do that forever. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Well, all right, Adam. Uh, I guess uh, we'll just kind of close it up there. That sounds like a good place to leave it because that's kind of why we're all in it. You know, we all have yeah. intellectual curiosity. We all have this drive to learn more and uh, spend time with friends doing things we love. And uh, that's part of the reason we started the podcast. Uh, Bob and I are good friends, and we want to invite our friends like you on. Because um, really, you, I mean, you're a good friend, Adam, and I don't get a chance to talk to you very often. In fact, I think I probably spoke to you more when you lived in the UK. Yeah, you, know, you did. It was odd. That is odd. We used to Skype regularly. I haven't spoken to you for a while. But, man, you know, there's, there's plenty of time we can we can get back with that. You've had the museum to do, and uh, obviously you've, got, you, you've been busy with your lovely wife. But hopefully things all... Uh, We'll have more opportunities to talk in the future. Well, I hope so. I hope we get to see you up in the Pacific Northwest in not too long. Oh, you definitely will. I love it, though. <laughs> I'll get an opportunity and go. <laughs> well, fantastic. Yeah, after the plague passes and uh, all this stuff, yeah. over, then, uh, then hopefully we can get together and maybe do some Bigfoot investigations out in our neck of the woods or something like that. That would be wonderful. I'd love that. Right. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for coming on, man. I really, really oh, My pleasure. My pleasure. Nice to speak to you guys. And, and thank, thank you. you for inviting me. I've enjoyed it. It's been a buzz. Yep. Thanks, bud. Bye. Bye. Right, take it easy. All right. Well, that was cool, man. We don't. I don't get a chance to talk to Adam as much as I used to. This is that was wonderful. Like, there's so many things to go over with him. It, it's hard to pick one. I mean, we touched on a lot of stuff, but I really want 
We could have dove in for hours on each one of those subjects. Oh, easily. Yeah, because of Michaela Mbembe or Orang Pendex or the Almas or Bigfoot or, I mean, Mongolian Deathworm. I think he's done sea serpent stuff and lake monsters. That guy has is is just one of the most prolific and varied adventurers that's living today on the planet. No one else. I can't think of anyone else who has done the things that Adam has done just for the sheer enjoyment of it all as well. Like he's a model for us all. I love that man. Yeah. I mean, there's TV shows that go around to us, but they, you know, we know how it is in our TV show. You're just doing the shoot real. You're not, you know, so I mean, for real explorers that are actually diving in and getting dirty and being out there for weeks or months, he's probably the most prolific guy alive in the world. Yeah. Yeah. When I, um, he was half the reason I was so excited to go to Sumatra when he had the chance. Cause at the time I had not met Adam, um, barely corresponded at all. You know, the, going to Sumatra was great, but meeting Adam was, uh, just as beneficial to the rest of my life as, as any other experience uh, of caliber and magnitude. Right. Right. Yeah. I was stuck when they said we were going to meet Adam Davies down in Sumatra. I was like, what? Then, you know, I was kind of little intimidated to meet him. I was like, this guy's the real deal, man. This guy's badass. And then I met him at the lobby and we went and had some drinks and yeah, you were there. And it was just like, this guy's so cool. Like just humble and down to earth. And you wouldn't know what a badass he is. I mean, he's like a mild mannered, like normal looking guy. And he's, I mean, the stuff he's gone through is just 57 miles through an African swamp or 57 kilometers through an African swamp waiting yeah, he's being modest. I, I heard those stories when we were camping out in Sumatra in the jungle, and he would he would he, he's like because it's pretty rough. And I go, dude, this place is gnarly. And he goes, oh yeah, yeah, this is probably the second worst place I've ever been. He goes, second? Oh yeah, Africa. And he starts telling me about this adventure he had in Africa, wading through the swamps. He goes, yeah, can you imagine? Uh, like wading, you know, waist deep in you know lukewarm, nasty water with leeches trying to attach to you underwater and you're swatting away flies because if you let them land they're going to lay eggs in your eyes and at the same time there's monsters in the woods and things are trying to poke you and bite you and just like oh my god remind me never go to the congo you know yeah remember the african sweat bees he was talking about oh yeah 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 ridiculous man that guy's been through the ringer all right people thanks for joining in with us and listening Hit the like and share buttons. Turn your friends on to it. We'd appreciate it. And until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 